My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the November edition of the journal. The first paper I'd like to highlight is a National Census of UK Endoscopy Services from 2019, pre-COVID pandemic. This is an important paper reflecting endoscopy practice in the UK in the year prior to the pandemic and will be an invaluable resource in the ongoing planning of how best to re-establish and where appropriate reconfigure services. The headline for me was that there were more than 2 million gastrointestinal endoscopic procedures performed by more than 5,000 endoscopists in 2019. And that's likely to reflect under-reporting, in that the census was returned by 322 out of 471 centres. Predictably, more procedures were done by more people than reported in the previous census in 2017. The interesting data set will be the numbers for 2020 and 2021, and to reflect on how the restrictions faced during the pandemic will impact on services moving forward, including the challenging question as to whether all the procedures done previously will still be considered necessary with the practice changes we have all had to make. The second article relates to constipation and ulcerative colitis, pathophysiology and practical management. Constipation is well recognised in ulcerative colitis during the acute phase, particularly proximal constipation in the setting of distal disease and in remission, although not always straightforward to diagnose or treat. In this issue, Miller and colleagues discuss the pathophysiology and practical management. Factors in the etiology include that chronic inflammation has significant effects on the enteric nervous system, colonic structure and motility, and that that may predispose to constipation. Diagnosis is mostly clinical. The modified Rome 3 criteria can be used, see box 1 in the paper. Plain abdominal x-ray is not generally useful, although bowel transit studies can be helpful. Treatment, not evidence-based, includes consideration of biofeedback, prokaryotics and laxatives. And there's a detailed discussion and excellent algorithm in the paper. This is undoubtedly an important topic. There is no doubt that adequate treatment of UC-associated constipation can help achieve clinical remission in flares and may help avoid unnecessary treatment escalation in patients in remission with symptomatic constipation rather than a disease flare. Research questions are highlighted and include what is the underlying motility disturbance? What is the optimal diagnostic test? What is the optimal diet or dietary intervention? And what is the optimum laxative therapy and pharmacological treatment strategy for this condition? Essential reading and editor's choice this month. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to the incidence and prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease in Devon, UK. We're all aware from our clinical practice that the incidence and prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease continues to increase. There has been some suggestion that at least in some settings, the incidence has started to plateau. In this issue, Hamilton and colleagues report their local data from Devon, UK. 
They confirm the incidence looks to be stabilising, although report that prevalence has increased by almost 40% over the last 10 years, reporting one of the highest prevalence rates from Northern Europe for UC, Crohn's disease and IBD and classified of 479, 265 and 35 per 100,000. They estimate that by 2030, the overall prevalence will reach 1%. The authors also highlight that there have been significant increases in the use of biologics over and above the increase in prevalence. That is from 45 per thousand in 2010 to almost 150 per thousand in 2017. We all know from our clinical practice that this is likely to increase. This data set reflects our clinical practice and looking forward, we need to reflect on how to best manage patients with inflammatory bowel disease within the healthcare resource available, particularly with the clinical practice challenges and opportunities we need to embrace as we start to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like next to mention a pair of articles on managing IBD and non-IBD fistulating perianal disease. These two articles in education and practice provide an authoritative overview of the etiology assessment and management of fistulating perianal disease. In the first, Adegobala and colleagues cover fistulating perianal Crohn's disease, including the medical and surgical management, consensus-based, the indications for seton placement, the massive impact of biological usage, and when consideration should be given to more invasive surgical options, including reparative surgery, and in some cases, defunctioning ostomy or proctectomy. Future developments are discussed, but in summary, the treatment of Crohn's perianal fistulas are to drain the underlying sepsis, place cetons if needed, aggressively manage proctitis, and medically treat the fistulas with a combination of antibiotics, immunosuppressants, and monoclonal antibody therapy. In the second article, Tozen and colleagues review non-IBD fistulizing disease. Usually straightforward, but sometimes not. These conditions include complex cryptoglandular fistula, rectovaginal fistula, and those associated with ileanal pouches, which are associated with the high levels of morbidity, risk and treatment failure. These conditions are discussed in detail, including recognition, assessment and management, and the indications for surgical input. The article has multiple helpful images and figures in it. Complex anal fistula are hard to treat. Treatment goals should be realistic. In refractory cases, IBD should always be considered. The final article I'd like to highlight relates to the provision of care for pregnant women with inflammatory bowel disease in the UK, the current landscape. The British Society of Gastroenterology and the British Maternal and Fetal Medicine Society have recently published guidance on service setup and minimum standards of care for pregnant women with inflammatory bowel disease. In this issue, Wolf and colleagues survey the current landscape. In summary, the findings suggest that in many units, there's a lack of robust systems to manage IBD during pregnancy, and that input and communication with obstetric services is ad hoc and not regular. We know women with IBD have a higher risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. 
We know IBD disease activity is associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. And so consideration of ongoing treatment and prompt management of treatment flares is essential. The authors recommend that IBD units should devise systems that ensure regular reviews during pregnancy by suitable experienced clinicians with regular communication with obstetric services and involvement in key decisions. This might in larger units include a dedicated specialist clinic. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter, listen to our regular podcasts and access the journal via the journal website. My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.